If you are a fan of the fantasy genre of literature, you've probably read both The Lord of the Rings by J.R.R. Tolkien and The Chronicles of Narnia by C.S. Lewis. Both pieces of literature have become monumental bestsellers, were turned into blockbuster movies, and are beloved by multiple generations. However, there was a time before these books were written when Tolkien and Lewis were simply friends. Both were young, brilliant professors at Oxford in England. Tolkien was a Christian, and Lewis was not. Now, for many of us who've read C.S. Lewis's works, it's hard to imagine a time when he wasn't a Christian because of the impact he had on the 20th century in Christian faith. But late one night, long past midnight, way in the wee hours of the morning, in 1930, Tolkien and Lewis were walking along a a wooded path behind Magdalen College at Oxford, discussing life and faith. Both men had survived the horrors of World War I, and they were keenly aware of the fallenness of our world. Tolkien felt that this world was not all there was, that there was something supernatural beyond what we could see. And Lewis felt the opposite. The natural world was all there was, he argued, and the sad horrors of World War I pointed to this. Indeed, the world is ugly, but it's all we got, he said. Well, Tolkien appealed to Lewis's love of mythology and the myths of ancient cultures. Tolkien said, well, Jack, as he called him, what if all those ancient and beautiful stories were echoes of something larger, of something truer? What if they were signs to humanity that another world existed, another realm, outside of time? And Tolkien turned to Lewis and asked him to consider whether it was possible that at one time these myths had coincided with history, whether at one time eternity may have broken into our world. Now, C.S. Lewis's journey into answering that question produced a profound change in his life and, frankly, many others, forever. His conversion story is nothing short of a miracle. Well, we're just about halfway through our series, Belief in an Age of Skepticism, and for the last six or seven weeks, we have been answering key questions on life and faith. And so today we come to the fascinating topic of miracles. Are they real? Or are they a ruse? And if they're real, what does that mean for belief in God? Now, if you've walked in this room today and you're questioning the existence of God, I would invite you to consider the same question that Tolkien asked Lewis. Has eternity at one time or multiple times broken into our world? In fact, in 2008, Time Magazine did a survey and found that a majority of Americans, 57% to be exact, believed that God could miraculously intervene to save a family member, even if doctors indicated that, uh, that w- the efforts were futile. Now, you may be sitting here today and you're saying, well, I don't care what a majority of Americans think. I, I, I pride myself in not being in the majority. I am in the 43% of people who don't think miracles exist, and the presence of miracles in the Bible undermines the historicity of it. Well, I understand where you're coming from. We'll get to those questions in just a moment. But this survey in time, I think, tells me and I think tells us something about the heart of many people. And it's this. At some point in our lives, all of us long for a miracle. All of us long for a miracle. Why? 
Well, Abraham Kuyper was a Dutch theologian back in the uh, 19th and in the early 20th century, and he suggested that we can't consider our longing for miracles until we properly understand the fall of humanity and its, its curse on our world. In fact, Abraham Kuyper writes this. He says, the curse it has totally transformed nature into an ominous threat. In fact, in the Garden of Eden, nature embraced our race with a disarming love and protected it. But now, driven by the curse, it appears as if that same nature directs its anger, especially to the object of its former special love, and leaps upon the human race to torment it. Wow. Well, Kuiper's point, of course, here is to say that because of the fall, we long for God to intervene in human affairs. We long for someone more powerful than ourselves to break into our world, to make things right, because we know things aren't as they're supposed to be. In fact, perhaps you're sitting here today and you've experienced some of sin's effects in your own life or in the life of someone you love. I think of the story of my friend Josh. He was diagnosed with a rare form of cancer in his late 30s. He and his wife had just adopted four young children because they couldn't have their own. And one day, Josh became sick. Oh, he's still alive, but he's, and he's beating the odds, but that cancer keeps coming back and back as a reminder of the curse that we live under. I think of stories of several of my friends whose marriages have broken up shortly after they made their nuptials. The person who said they would love them for the rest of their lives and cherish them until death do them part, betrayed them, broke their heart. The only thing that could have saved their marriage was a miracle which didn't come. It's more evidence of the fall. Friends, things are not as they are supposed to be. I think we can agree on this. And we ask the question, is this really the world that God created? What do most people say when that's brought up? They say, well, if there is a God, why is there so much evil and suffering in this world? Does God still care about our world? Did he just walk away? Pastor Dave talked about this at length last week as we considered the problem of suffering. And I think today one way that God alleviates suffering in our world is through miracles. And our longing for miracles is a longing for God himself to show up and reveal himself to us. And so what I want to suggest to you at the outset this morning is that there is a God, the God of the Bible, who is still actively involved in our world. And in fact, miracles are actually one way of God's revealing himself to this world. And maybe they're even his way of bringing redemption to this world. See, the Greek word for miracles is sameos, which means sign. But signs don't point to themselves. Or if they do, they're a bad sign. They always point to something beyond themselves. And so as we consider miracles today, there are three key questions we need to consider to answer. And they're this. What are miracles? Do miracles still happen? And thirdly, what do miracles point to? And so I invite you to consider today whether or not eternity has broken into our world. And as we begin, would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we come before you today and we are keenly aware of the effects of the fall. That the curse 
is upon us, Lord, and yet we know that you, if we are your followers, are sovereign over all those things, that you are a good God who loves us and who actively is involved in his creation. Some of us in here today may be struggling and wrestling with, could these things even happen? They haven't happened in my life. Well, is there a God then? Well, Father, I pray as we look at your word this morning, as we look at uh, things people talk about, that you would speak to our hearts and that we would leave this place changed for your glory. And we ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. So what is a miracle? Well, I recently Googled the word miracle, and here were some of the top hits. Uh, Apparently, if you're a music fan, there is a song by the band Coldplay called Miracles. There was a recent movie by, made about Whitney Houston, a biopic called Miracle. And the landing of the jet that flew out of LaGuardia Airport a few years ago and hit a flock of birds and landed on the Hudson River was called the, the Miracle on the Hudson. Now, in our vernacular language, we often use that word miracle, but we don't define it. And so we might ask at the outset here, what exactly is a miracle? Is, is, is a broken marriage story that was restored, is that a miracle? Is a, a, a child who was cured of some really deadly disease, is, is that a miracle? Is, is a changed life story, I mean, somebody who was walking in one direction, you thought their life was just going to end in disaster, and all of a sudden it was completely turned around, is that a miracle? In fact, I think when I was, uh, when I was a child, maybe 10, 11, 12 years old, uh, my family and I always vacationed down in Long Beach Island, and I, I distinctly remember one time I was going back to the house we were renting, and uh, I had to go to the bathroom, and, and I, I went, and then I was going back to the beach, and as I was going back, I didn't listen to my mom, and I didn't look both ways as I crossed the street. And so my foot went down and hit the pavement, and, I, and something said to me, stop, and I pulled back, and I realized that I almost was hit by a car. Was that a miracle? Did something intervene in our lives? In fact, the Apostle Paul asserts in Ephesians chapter 6 that there are two worlds, that there is a visible, physical world, but there's also an invisible, spiritual world that we cannot see. And Christians believe that the physical world is temporary, but this invisible world is eternal. And so I want to ask today, what if we just stopped for a second and took a step back and, and assumed that these two worlds exist? In, in fact, there's a scene in, second, in the Old Testament book, 2 Kings chapter 6, where the prophet Elisha shows an invisible army to his servant, an army other people can't see. And so, again, how should we define a miracle? Well, well Webster's Dictionary defines it this way. It says, a miracle is an extraordinary event manifesting in human affairs. C.S. Lewis goes a step further, and he says a miracle is something unique that breaks a pattern so expected and established, we hardly considered the possibility that it could be broken. And Lewis went on to say that a miracle is an interference with nature by a supernatural power. Well, I want to suggest what I think is a better definition. It's one offered by author Eric Metaxas, and he says a miracle is eternity breaking into our world. Now, I acknowledge for some that's, that's a pretty broad definition. Is everything a miracle? Well, no, I, I, don't, I don't think everything is a miracle, but I do think maybe there's levels of miracles. See, the parting of the Red Sea uh, is not the same thing as me not being killed by a car, but in both instances, maybe God intervened in the natural world on a sliding scale that can be termed miraculous. Both need to be considered. 
You see, again, I want to suggest to you today there's two worlds, a physical and a spiritual world, the eternal and the temporal. And I want to suggest to you today, at the outset here, I don't know where you're coming from, but there is a God, I think, who is there and who, through his miraculous works in this world, is telling a story, a story we're all part of. And it began with the creation of the world. See, the author of Genesis says that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Which begs a question, is creation itself a miracle? In his excellent book, that author I mentioned, Eric Metaxas, he wrote a book called Miracles, and he discusses the numerous elements that had to be just right in order for life to exist on this planet. Now, Pastor Dave mentioned these at length in his sermon on origins, so I won't repeat them, but there is one I do want to mention, and it's this. Um, What about the possibility of life on other planets? Well, in the 1960s, Carl Sagan, the famed cosmologist at Cornell, said there were only two factors needed to uh, support life on a planet. Well, since then, science has shown us that factors needed for life have shot up to at least, at least 150, maybe more, which makes the fact that life even exists on this planet a miracle. Theologian and philosopher Douglas Grotius agrees with that sentiment, and he says this, we live in a designer universe. It is not explicable by chance, by law, by combination of chance and law, or by an impersonal God. In other words, eternity broke into our world miraculously and created life on planet Earth. Now, before we move on, uh, we must consider, if you're a Christian here today, what the Bible itself says about miracles. And so theologian John Frame and his systematic theology offers some guidance on this area. And this is what he says. He's got a different definition. He says a miracle is an extraordinary manifestation of God's covenant lordship. An extraordinary manifestation of God's covenant lordship. Now, what he means by that is that God performs his mighty acts so that people will know that he is the Lord. Creation itself points to this. In fact, miracles, Frame argues, draw attention to the attributes of God that define his lordship. And he mentions three. He talks about God's control, God's authority, and God's covenant presence. So the first one, again, he mentions is that miracles show us God's control. That when miracles happen, they are a reminder to us that God is in control of this world. In fact, when miracles happen, the result is, is enormous power. Enormous power. Consider the miracle which serves as the one central story of the Old Testament people of God, the Exodus, right? The people of God escaped the oppression of the Egyptians only by the power of God being manifested in the parting of the Red Sea. And this great redemptive power of God is remembered over and over and over again in the Old Testament. What does God say in the Ten Commandments? He says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of slavery, out of Egypt. Remember what I did? Remember? In fact, in Exodus 15, after this has happened, Moses sings a song of praise to God for his miraculous saving of his people. He says this, Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? You stretched out your right hand, the earth swallowed them. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. See, in Egypt, God won the contest of power against the magicians and against Egypt's gods. 
And throughout the scriptures, miracles are described often as God's mighty works and people praise him for them. Secondly, miracles show God's authority. Miracles, yes, show that God is in control, but they are also signs that reveal and point to God's supreme authority in this world. In fact, John Frame says it this way, miracles not only accomplish great things, they display God to us. And so miracles are a revelation of God, eternity breaking into our world. Miracles are the signs that are pointing to the God behind the miracle. And so at the end of John's gospel, the author recounts that Jesus himself performed a lot of miracles, but he also tells us the purpose of those miracles. John 20 says this, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. In other words, Jesus did a lot of other cool stuff, John says, but I included the most important ones so that you may believe. See, Jesus' miracles are often paralleled with miracles in the Old Testament, things like miraculous feedings and stilling the storms and raising the dead and the healings of the blind, the deaf, the lame, the mute. And all of those miracles have the purpose of revealing the character of God and pointing people to him. And praise God that he reveals to us just what we need in his word. Amen? The third thing he mentions is God's covenant presence. So miracles are wonders, meaning they provoke a powerful response from those who observe them. Why? Well, the miracle provokes a response because in the miracle, God is present. That he's the Lord over this world. In fact, after parting the Red Sea, there, as we mentioned, was a song of worship. In Luke 5... There is a miracle and a miraculous catch of fish. And Peter, the disciple, responds in an interesting way. This is what he says. It says, but when Simon Peter saw it, this miraculous catch, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. That's a weird response to a miracle. It seems odd. But it is an indication of the presence of God that parallels Isaiah 6. What happened there? Isaiah saw the Lord and he fell down on his feet and said, I am a man of unclean lips. I dwell amongst the people of unclean lips. And I'm in your presence now and I can, I can see that. See, God's presence in miracles helps us recognize that we're sinful and unworthy to be in his presence. See, when a miracle happens, God's presence breaks into our world. Again, as Eric Metaxas puts it, eternity touches earth. And so a miracle, yes, is an extraordinary manifestation of God's covenant lordship where we see that he is in control, that he has authority, that he is present. And while that's all great, you know, some of us may be sitting here and saying, well, yes, I get all that. I, I get what you're saying. But, but again, do miracles still happen? I, I mean, I know they happened in the Bible, but, but do they still happen today? Well, that's a great question. That's actually our second question. Do miracles still happen? Right? I, I wonder, as we consider this, if it, if it is most logically consistent to say that if indeed miracles occurred in the Bible, would they not also be possible today? In, in other words, if the Bible is true, which we talked about a few weeks ago, if the things that happen in the Bible are real, if they're is an invisible spiritual world, as we mentioned, why couldn't miracles happen today? John Frame puts it this way. He says, miracles are possible 
Because God exists. Miracles are possible because God exists. Now, of course, at this point, we must acknowledge that our worldview significantly influences our view of this. And here's a few possibilities. Maybe you've walked in here today and you're, you're a deist. A deist essentially says that, well, God created the world, but yeah, then he left it to his own devices. He wound up the clock and kind of left it on its way. He's not really involved in this world. Maybe you're a naturalist. We've talked a lot about naturalism. Naturalist doesn't think there's a God, that all we have is the universe. And this view juxtaposes the natural and the supernatural. That science tries to explain nature, but the, the supernatural really is outside of nature. So, so the question we have to ask is, are, are there some things that science can't explain? Maybe you're a pantheist. You think that, that God is, is in everything, that he's, he's not separate from creation. He's the, the spiritual force behind it, like in Star Wars, like the metachlorians that are in people, apparently. Maybe you're a theist. If you're a Christian, you're a theist. You believe God created the world, that he's actively part of it, but he's also separate. And what I want to suggest here is that to believe in miracles, you eventually have to get to this last uh, position because you have to believe that there is a God who is outside of the system, but who can reach into the system and intervene. Now, at some point, uh, a naturalist would object here and say, well, hold on a second. I agree with philosopher David Hume, the 19th century philosopher, who tried to discredit the miraculous in his essay on miracles. And Hume's basic point in his essay was this. We should distinguish miracles from extraordinary events. Okay, so Hume wrote this. He said, a miracle is a violation of the laws of nature. In other words, a miracle breaks an established law in, in the natural world. And so an extraordinary event, he says, is just an unexpected or rare one. So, for example, let's say that I went out and I was struck by lightning seven times and somehow I survived. Or let's say that um, I got a life-threatening illness and yet I recover from it. Well, Hume would, would consider those consistent with the, the laws of nature. Those are extraordinary events, he would say. However, if somebody rises from the dead, well... That breaks the laws of nature. Or somebody parts a giant body of water, that's, that's a miracle, he would say. But Hume also makes an assertion that we essentially can't believe eyewitnesses to miracles. He kills the argument before he can even make it. Why? He says, because all of us are motivated to believe surprising things. So if you come up and say that you saw a miracle, maybe you're believing those things because you think it's going to make you popular. Or uh, it's just going to make for a better story that you can sell and make a lot of money off of it later on. Or, or maybe you have religious motivations to believe that. David Hume believed that there will always be more evidence that eyewitness accounts are mistaken. And again, he's killing the argument before you can make it without even examining the evidence. Well, there's two points we should note here. First, I think David Hume's definition of a miracle is problematic. Um, because we said already that if God controls nature, he is the one who establishes what is and is not possible. See, miracles are not possible, I would argue, apart from God's intervention in this world. So as, as, again, as John Frame argues, if God exists, you have to believe miracles are possible. Secondly, in addition to arguing that miracle reports tend to arise, David Hume says, from emotional excess and exaggeration, he also says these reports often come from ignorance, and barbarous nations. 
Well, again, in response to Hume and others like him, we may consider these things. First, when considering the biblical accounts, the biblical account, nation of Israel, is not often considered barbarous and ignorant. It is true that they lived before the advent of modern science, but they were aware of events that occurred out of the ordinary. For example, they probably knew that two or five loaves and two fish couldn't feed 5,000 people. That's a bit odd when that happens. Or second, it's fair to ask the question, do miracles exist in our modern scientific world? Can they be proven? Well, to answer that question, I would point you to two resources. The first one at a scholarly level is by a man named Dr. Craig Keener. It's kind of the definitive work on this topic, and it's simply called Miracles, the Credibility of the New Testament Accounts. Now, the resource is 1,200 pages, a little light reading if you would like, <clears throat> of evidence of miracles that, that occur all over the world and, are indeed, are ha- and indeed are happening today. There are stories of children with club feet who were healed before people's eyes. There are stories of tumors that were on a CAT scan and then weren't on a CAT scan. And what do you do with that? And some of the doctors get mad and like, I could, I could have sworn it was there before. Before and after images. I mean, that's, that's the scientific proof you're looking for, right? In fact, Keener cites an amazing study of medical doctors who said uh, 70% said they believe in miracles. And 40% said they actually have seen something they consider to be a miracle. That's medical doctors. It should also be noted that Keener was very strict on what he included in the book, but he says there may be many, many more miracles that I didn't even include here that may qualify. Well, at a popular level, I mentioned already Eric Metaxas' book, Miracles, which also details many stories of what miracles may look like. And so in addition to physical healings, Metaxas establishes several other categories of miracles. He mentions conversion miracles. Again, has, has someone's life, somebody you knew, somebody's life changed in a miraculous way that you never thought would happen. In fact, he tells a story in the book about a young uh, girl, Muslim girl in Iran, who became a Christian through dreams she had about Jesus. In fact, later in her life, she met some people from another part of the world who revealed that they were the ones who had been praying for her, and God revealed that to them. I was blown away by this. Uh, he, he talks about categories of inner healing, that maybe, maybe you just could not possibly forgive somebody, and then God intervened and you were able to forgive somebody for their hurt against you. Angels. Do angels exist? My mom swears there's people who have stopped by and helped her for the car that were angels, helped her when her car broke down. But again, do you believe in the invisible realm? Divine intervention. Metaxas tells an incredible story about his friend who was present in the Twin Towers on 9-11 and somehow miraculously through God's intervention was able to escape and be saved and went on to do a lot of do ministry in the city. To those who are still critical of modern miracles, Craig Keener observes this. He says, those who are ready to dismiss all miracle claims should keep in mind they are dismissing hundreds of millions of miracle claims, usually without examining any of them. Now, perhaps you're here today and that's you. And if the biggest barrier to you coming to faith in Jesus is the miracle stories of the Bible, I would encourage you, read Craig Keener's work, read Eric Metaxas, but read with an open mind. Don't let pride keep you from the truth. So if there is a possibility of miracles still happening in our modern world, 
There is a natural question that follows from that, and that's our third question. It's what do these miracles point towards? What do these miracles point towards? And I want to ask you today as we consider this last question, what if miracles pointed towards redemption? What if miracles are actually evidence of the Christian faith and its veracity? In the book of Acts chapter 2, the apostle Peter preaches a sermon about salvation through Jesus Christ. And this is what he says in verse 22. He says to the people there, he says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs, miracles, that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. You see, New Testament scholar Daryl Bach often says that miracles and the resurrection were God's stamp of approval on Jesus, a proof that he was who he said he was. Later on, the writer of the book of Hebrews says the same thing. Essentially, God revealed himself through signs and wonders and various miracles, he writes in chapter 2, verse 4. In other words, miracles are signs that point us to redemption in Jesus Christ. Now, that is where I stop. And as I see these miracle accounts in Scripture, and I I ask the question, well, why would God even perform miracles? Why wouldn't God just make us believe? And here's what I wonder. I wonder if perhaps God performs miracles so that we could catch a glimpse of who he is for the purpose that we might put our faith and trust in him so that we might have greater faith in him because miracles are a way of God building our faith. Miracles are, again, I love how Eric Metaxas puts it, eternity-touching earth. God's saying, I'm real, I'm here. I, see, I don't think God does miracles just for the sake of doing miracles. He performs them to point us to himself, to point us to redemption. Because the ultimate miracle was even yet to come. You see, that the parting of the Red Sea and that rescue was a foreshadowing of the miracle of the resurrection, right? See, take yourself back to the days of the disciples and Jesus, and, and think about what was happening. Think about what was going on. For, for the longest time before his crucifixion, Jesus is speaking in riddles. He said he's going to destroy the temple, and then he's going to rebuild it in three days, and the disciples are going, what? What are you talking about? Jesus, have you, have you lost your marbles? Then he's arrested, He's tried and he's crucified. He puts the disciples in a pit of despair. In fact, I I imagine as the Messiah is killed, they're longing for a miracle. And then Luke records this in chapter 24 of his gospel. He says, but on the first day of the week at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. And while they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, why do you seek the living among the dead? He's not here, but is risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee, didn't you get it then? (laughs) That the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified on the third day rise? And as they remembered his words and returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, the women went, and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. 
But these words seemed them an idle tale, and they didn't believe them. How This couldn't happen, right? But Peter rose and ran to the tomb, and stooping and looking in, he saw the linen clothes by themselves, and listen to this. So he went home marveling at what had happened. Now, did you catch that? Peter was marveling at the miracle of the resurrection. In fact, one wonders if at this point Peter recognizes that everything Jesus had been saying came true. That what he said he promised to happen, it did happen. Did he realize that this was the miracle that changes everything? Because if the resurrection happened, there is no miracle that is impossible. Now, again, some people object at this point and simply say, well, well, Jesus didn't actually rise from the dead. I mean, come on, the disciples made it up. They, they imagined it in their minds, right? Well, the Apostle Paul wrote these words in 1 Corinthians 15, and he says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. And that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. Now these words in 1 Corinthians 15, you may know, were considered an early creed of the church. They were written down shortly after the resurrection, very shortly after the resurrection, as proof that it actually happened. Not only do we have a creed of the earliest Christians explicitly talking about the resurrection, we also have accounts of Jesus appearing to many, many people. In fact, let me detail out a few more solid reasons we have to believe in the resurrection in addition to this early creed. First, from this passage and the gospel accounts, we learn that we have an empty tomb and many eyewitnesses. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul specifically speaks again of the empty tomb and the resurrection on the third day, and he doesn't speak about it as metaphor, but as an actual historical account. Additionally, Jesus appeared not just to individuals and to small groups, but also to a group of 500. That's more people than are in this room here today. It's likely that most were still alive at the time he wrote this letter so they could corroborate the story and what they saw. And it should also be noted that Paul's letter here was written to a church, meaning that it was read publicly. So if people wanted more evidence, they could easily travel and find the proof they were looking for. This could easily have been disproven. Second, outside of this account in the text, the book of Acts, shows us that the apostles chose to preach the message of resurrection in Jerusalem shortly after it happened. Now again, New Testament scholar Daryl Bach notes that this would have been a very bad idea. It would have been a bad idea because Jerusalem was the last place you would want to preach this message. Because bodily resurrection was a radical idea in the ancient world. And so the, the Greeks and the Romans believed in the immortality of the soul, but not the resurrection of the body. And the Jews believed in the bodily resurrection, but they didn't believe Jesus was Messiah. So ironically, all the disciples were Jewish and were from the Jerusalem area. And even though it was a bad place to preach and a bad place to believe, they did it anyway. And if the tomb wasn't empty, people would have known Third, now, perhaps you don't accept the biblical evidence, and I I can understand that if you're a skeptic here today, but let's consider something outside the Bible. 
Historical evidence shows us that the entire Christian community suddenly adopted a set of beliefs that were brand new up until that point of history and would have been unimaginable. So the first Christians had a complete worldview shift. The first Christians made the resurrection the center of their belief. It was central. They believed that the future resurrection began with Jesus. They believed that Jesus walked through walls and ate food. They believed Jesus' resurrection guaranteed their future resurrection. And some point, and some of that future new life was in their hearts presently. Almost all of Jesus' closest followers were willing to give their lives for this new belief. And so it's, it's really hard, unfathomable to believe that this kind of self-sacrifice would have been a hoax. In fact, scholar N.T. Wright points out that every one of those beliefs was unique up until that point in the world. And here's what's even more amazing, right? Wright notes that every other time a group of people had a worldview shift in history, it happened over time. But the Christian view of resurrection occurred almost instantaneously after his death. Wow. Now, finally, well, all that's really interesting, One of the most important pieces of evidence proving the reality of the resurrection is the inclusion of women as the first eyewitnesses. Now, in the gospel accounts, and in in that world, in Jesus' time, women were very limited in what they could testify to. So to include them as witnesses in the gospel accounts would not have made any sense if you were trying to prove that the resurrection was real. See, people at this time would have discredited the women's testimony almost immediately. In fact, again, Daryl Bach notes, if the disciples were trying to prove that the story of the resurrection was real, it would not have made any sense to include women as eyewitnesses because the fact that women are included by multiple sources is, is evidence that it actually happened. Paul continues in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, but if there, is a res- no, if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even, to be found, we are, we are even found to be misinterpreting, misrepresenting God because he testified about God that he raised Christ whom he did raise if it is true and the dead are not raised. But do you see what Paul's saying? He is saying that this miracle, the miracle of the resurrection, matters most to our faith. That everything hinges on believing this miracle, that if Jesus actually rose from the dead, why would not other miracles be possible? And then what does that mean for us? Because the resurrection, friends, the resurrection points to the future hope that we have, both personally and cosmically. That the resurrection is the certainty that one day all things will be restored. That we'll get a new body. That new relationships will come without sin. That all your needs will be provided, if not in this life, then the next. Here's what Tim Keller suggests the resurrection shows us about the future. He says the resurrection, that miracle shows us the future is there. That we're not just dust in the wind. It shows us the the future is, is personal that it's the restoration of those lost relationships, that if someone you love has died and they're a believer, you will be reunited one day. It shows us the future is certain, that Jesus is walking proof there will be a future, and if you're a follower of Christ, your salvation is secure. You don't have to wonder where you're going. And fourth, he says, it shows us the future is unimaginably wonderful. That's, it's the restoration of all you lost. 
To be in the presence of Jesus is what we were made for. And I think deep down we know there is something more that we were meant for. You see, friends, I believe miracles happen and can still happen. To point people to something better than what they are living for. To point people to belief and specifically belief in Jesus Christ. And so some of us in this room may have been longing for a miracle in their life. And maybe it hasn't happened and you're ready to give up on God. Maybe you've been praying really, really hard for that loved one to be healed. For that job to get better. For that person you want to spend the rest of your life with to finally, finally come along. And maybe, just maybe God will do a miracle in your life. But if that miracle hasn't happened yet, there is something crucial you need to hear today, friends. You need to hear this because it is indeed the message of the miracle of the resurrection. And it's this. Even if you don't experience the restoration through a miracle in this life, The resurrection is the guaranteed hope that in the next life, all things will be made new. That if you are desiring that healing, keep praying, yes. But even if you don't experience that miracle today, you will be healed when Jesus comes. Now, I don't want to offer any false hopes or expectations. I don't know what God is doing in your life, but I believe that he is a God who does miracles in his time and for his purpose. And so let me share with you two stories. The first story is about a woman named Delia Knox. One day she was in a car crash and was paralyzed from the waist down. She became an instant paraplegic. In over 22 years, she could not walk and was confined to a wheelchair. And during that time, she attended multiple healing services and was not healed. But then one night, her husband, who was a pastor, asked her to attend a service with him, and she was miraculously healed. After 22 years of being in a wheelchair, she could walk. And she praised her God and King for doing that in her life. And maybe you're here today and God might do that for you. The second story I would tell you is about a woman named Johnny Erickson Tata. During the summer of 1967, she was in a diving accident. She was diving from a raft into the Chesapeake Bay and she misjudged the depth of the water and fractured the levels of her spine between her fourth and fifth vertebrae, and she became an instant quadriplegic. She's been confined to a wheelchair her whole life since she was 17. Now, Joni is a profound woman of faith and has been prayed for innumerable times without miraculous healing. Why? Well, Joni, as she recounts the story, tells that she could have easily died that day in the water, but she was saved... And she considers that a miracle. Now she runs a ministry for people with special needs. Now, will Joni be healed one day in this life? Maybe. But I think these two stories illustrate a profound truth. That the reason God performs miracles, and frankly, the reason he allows suffering in our life, is the truth that Luke points to at the end of his gospel. And he says this. He says, then... He led them, this is Jesus, led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. And while he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And his followers, it says, they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. 
You see, you and I were made to be ruled. We need a king. And if we're not ruled by Jesus, we will be ruled by something else. See, Delia Knox praised her king when she was healed, and Joni Erickson Tata praised her king even though she hasn't been healed, and she, because she knows that her future hope is resurrection. That even if she is not healed in this present life, she has a future resurrection body awaiting her. And through the resurrection, God himself breaks into our world and performs a miracle so great that we cannot help but confess that he is the true king who is worthy of our worship. New Testament scholar Craig Blomberg says it beautifully. He says, the main message of miracles is the arrival of the kingdom of God. And if the kingdom has come, then the king must be present. So the miracles likewise serve to authenticate Jesus' messianic identity. Or to put it more succinctly, miracles happen to point us to the true king. Now, whether you've been to church your whole life or you stepped in here today for the first time, the story of the Bible is this, that God created this world for his glory. And through the rebellion of humanity and our desire to become God, sin entered the world and sent shockwaves throughout human history. But God, in his mercy and grace, entered into the story. Eternity touched earth in the person of Jesus Christ. And the entire Bible from Genesis 3 to Revelation is about God remaking the story of sin and turning it into a story of redemption and restoration. And miracles point to the reality that God himself took our hurts, took our pain, took our shame on the cross and accomplished the greatest miracle ever in this world and in the lives of his people. And the rest of the Bible is about the miracle of the gospel. It's about the king coming to earth to rescue us, and that is good news. It's good news that the kingdom has come, amen? That the king controls this world. He has authority. His presence is with us, and he has the power to rewrite our shattered story, to breathe new life into our lungs, which begs a final question as we close. Why do miracles matter? I mean, we've been talking for almost 40 minutes about what miracles are, if they happen, what they point to, but why do they matter? What can a miracle do in my or your life? And I suppose that depends on who you are. That if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, in fact, maybe you've been dragged to church today and that in and of itself is a miracle. College students, if you're here and you're up before noon, that's a miracle, right? Miracles matter because you may have walked in here today at this place in your life wondering if there's something more. And the miracle of the resurrection says there is. In fact, God may have brought you here today to recognize that for the first time, that there's something more. The Holy Spirit may actually be speaking to your heart right now. Now, many of us, I suspect, are Christians. You've been attending church for some time. You're doing the the church thing and... But it doesn't just feel like just doesn't feel like God has any power in your life. But through the message of the resurrection, I pray that you would recognize that God can make a difference in your life today, no matter how long you've been following him. I pray that the power of the Holy Spirit would be unleashed in your life. Because through what I've seen in Scripture and the stories I've heard, God uses the miraculous to bring people to belief in him, to give people greater trust in him. Now, I'm not sure what he'll do for you today, but I, 
I know he knows his purposes more than me. Either way, he promises that one day he'll make all things right. Amen. I'd invite the band, the worship team, to come up for one final song. And as they do, I'd, I'd like to come full circle back to that challenge of J.R.R. Tolkien that he gave to C.S. Lewis that late night in 1930. Tolkien said to Lewis, what if all these myths you're so intrigued by, what if they're an echo of a greater story, one that is true and real and present? And that conversation impacted Lewis so much that he actually considered it, and it haunted him. And what he didn't realize was that the hound of heaven was chasing after his heart. And one night, not long after, C.S. Lewis concluded that the Christian story was true. And he believed that the miracle of the resurrection was real and he surrendered his life to Jesus Christ. Of course, he went on to be a prolific author, even writing a book on miracles. And most famously, he wrote the children's classic, The Chronicles of Narnia, about the great lion Aslan and the, the magic that happened in the land of Narnia. And so as I close today, I wonder if you might consider this question. What if Narnia is real? What if there is another world which breaks into our world through these things we call miracles, allowing eternity to touch earth? And I pray that will haunt you until you meet the lion himself. Amen.